we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the center. And this week, our guest is Christoph Veresch, who is a researcher at the Migration Research Institute in Budapest and is a visiting scholar this year at the Center for Immigration Studies. Thanks for joining us, Christoph. Good morning, and Mark. What we wanted to talk about was a recent piece you had in the National Interest, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes, which was sort of your thoughts about, I mean, it started out as kind of your impressions of the U.S. border, the recent CIS border tour that you were on, which was of El Paso and New Mexico. But the bulk of the piece was kind of a, a take from a European perspective on the Remain in Mexico program here. Just so listeners get clear, there's been a lot of talk about it in the news, what the Remain in Mexico program, or formerly known as the Migrant Protection Protocols, was an arrangement authorized by federal law whereby an illegal immigrant who applies for asylum, say he sneaks over the border, turns himself in, he would be required to go back across the border into Mexico to wait for his hearing date rather than just be let go into the United States and, frankly, disappear. And President Biden suspended that on his first day in office and then formally rescinded it, and there's been litigation about it. But what Christoph talked about in this column I want to talk about here is how is this approach of having asylum seekers wait outside the country they're seeking asylum in, how has that worked or how is it being discussed in Europe? Because there are a number of, of things like this in the works, if not actually already working, in various European countries. So if you could just tell us a little bit about what do you think about the Remain in Mexico program? Well, first of all, uh, you have to know that in Europe, we had a huge migration crisis in 2015. We had hundreds of thousands of irregular migrants coming mostly from the Middle East, Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And most of the European countries and the European Union already in 2017 started looking at proposals that would entail migrants not coming to Europe, but their asylum claim being processed while they are still abroad. The first European leader that proposed such a solution was Emmanuel Macron in 2017. He called these... The president uh, of France. Yeah, he is president of France. He wanted to set up, he called them hotspots in sub-Saharan Africa, in the Sahel region. He proposed in 2017 that these asylum seekers' claims should be examined there, and only those should be uh, allowed to enter Europe who are granted that claim, not everyone. Did they go through with that, or was it just a proposal? Unfortunately, it was just a proposal, but later that year, in 2017, uh, the EU embraced it, and it's still part of the new European Pact on Migration and Refugees. There are small parts of it uh, which are implemented 
by the EU. I want to mention one, it's called the Emergency Transit Mechanism. And in 2019, 15 million US dollars were allocated from the EU budget to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees to resettle some Libyan refugees in a camp in Rwanda. Oh, interesting. In Rwanda? Yeah, Rwanda. So these were Libyan refugees or people who were from elsewhere who were in Libya? These were Libyan refugees mostly. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. What's interesting about the Remain in Mexico policy is that Democrats claim that it's inherently inhuman and cruel. So they think that setting up camps in Mexico is automatically uh, cruel, but obviously uh, the EU can do it in Rwanda. Right. So they did not end up setting up these facilities in Chad or Niger or whatever they were talking about in other parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Not yet. Not yet, unfortunately, but it's still on the EU agenda. But it takes a lot of time to pass anything at the EU level. <laughs> of course. However, at the, if you look at the member states or, or some of the ex-member states, because the United Kingdom is not a member state anymore, we see that a number of nation states already passed uh, legislation or are on their way to pass legislation to have similar policies. First, I would want to mention Hungary. In Hungary, you can only apply for asylum abroad. If you cross the border illegally, you cannot apply for asylum. Interesting. You have to do it in one of the non-EU countries which are bordering Hungary, that's either Serbia or Ukraine. More recently, the Danish government, and it's a socialist government, not a conservative one, adopted a measure that would also set up camps for asylum seekers outside of Europe. Denmark is also looking at Rwanda. Why? Because the European Union has an agreement with Turkey The EU gives Turkey uh, billions of dollars every year so that they don't let the migrants cross. Presently, they have roughly 4 million uh, migrants, mostly from Syria and Iraq. Unfortunately, we can't do the same with Africa because there is no stronger state in Northern Africa that you could just give money so that they don't let the migrants cross. That's why all of the governments are looking at Africa. That's why the Danish government and also the government of the United Kingdom is looking at setting up camps in Rwanda. Actually, the Danish and the UK government are negotiating with each other and are looking for solutions where they could set up camps together. So the way that would work is if they go through with it, is if you make it to Denmark, and presumably you'd be going through Italy or Germany or various other places to get there, and then make an asylum claim in Denmark, they would say, well, you get to apply for asylum, but we're putting you on a plane to go to Rwanda and you're going to wait there until we decide one way or the other? Is that the thinking? Exactly. The British version of the bill, it's still in the committee stage, but I'm pretty convinced that the conservative majority is going to adopt it in parliament. So the British variation uh, is even more harsh. It actually legally distinguishes between uh, those people who enter the country legally and those people who enter the country illegally. As far as applying for asylum, in yes. other words. Okay. Yes. So those people who enter the country legally, those ones, they just get deported. So it's not like they would start processing their asylum claim and then while that's on their way, they would ship them to a third country. No. If you enter the country legally, you get deported. Interesting. Okay. Deported to where, though? In some cases, like If you end up with an Afghan, what do you do with the Afghan? This is the problem, is that the countries people are coming from are sometimes places it's hard to deport people to. Indeed, that can be a very tough decision, but, well, the British government will have to figure that out. Interesting, interesting. 
And you had mentioned Turkey and its role and then the North African countries. And Turkey, in a sense, is sort of filling the role of Mexico with regard to us in the sense that it's the transit country and the Turks have a, a state that has significant capacity and can actually, if they want to, enforce the law. And so they've apparently played with the EU a little bit and extorted these payments and other things in order to shut off the flow. Would the situation in North Africa, where people are getting on boats, and so that's the issue there, would that have been as bad had Gaddafi not been overthrown in Libya? Because in a sense, Gaddafi was the cork in the bottle, preventing Libya from being used in that way. Yes, for the international community, and specifically for Europe, the overthrown of, of Gaddafi was a, was a huge debacle because right now we have absolutely no government, a strong government in Libya with which uh, the European Union could negotiate. Right. With Turkey, it's easy. You have a strong man there that you can negotiate with. You can't negotiate with failed states. Right. Yeah, because Libya basically, I mean, it's got various warlords and presumably uh, shifting control. It doesn't, it, there really is no Libya at this point. But there is a Morocco. I mean, Morocco has a functional state, and so does uh, Algeria. But is it that the flow from Africa, this is separate from the Middle East, the flow from Africa, do they go to Libya because that's the weak link? Absolutely. Just to mention a parallel in the U.S., I mean, you have sections of Trump's wall constructed. But if you have huge holes in your wall, then, then it's the same as if you, if you didn't have a wall at all. The same goes for countries. So if you have two strong states like Morocco and Algeria, but you also have one which is a failed state, then the migrants will find their way. All the migratory routes can shift very quickly. We've experienced that in Europe in 2015, and I think the United States is experiencing it right now. So in a sense, it's almost like Libya is the gap in the fence, if it were. I mean, there's no actual fence, but it's comparable to on our border tour, we saw a, a place where there was a gap in the fence. In fact, our last week's guest was the rancher who took us to see that. And what it does is it, that gap funnels the traffic through exactly. the hole. So it's basically Libya kind of in a larger geopolitical sense serves as the same function. And I did want to talk about Poland, which is in the news now in their border. But before that, it was something that you had mentioned to me that I never really had considered. And this relates to North Africa, how a water border is actually worse than a land border not referring to the Rio Grande, but the Mediterranean as being Europe's southern border is actually harder to deal with than our land border with Mexico. If you could sort of elaborate a little bit on that, why do you think that? Yeah, exactly. People think that having a sea as a border is, uh, when it comes to irregular migration, it's much better than having a land border. Unfortunately, that's not true. I mean, it might be true if it were the Pacific Ocean, yeah, but, sure, the Pacific Ocean. But the Mediterranean but is not Unfortunately, that. the Mediterranean is not the Pacific Ocean. I mean, if you have a land border, then you can close that border. You can build a wall and, and you can say that the border is closed. You can't come. If you have a, a sea border, then you're bound by international maritime law. What we see happening on the Mediterranean is that uh, people smugglers, mostly from Libya, they put migrants into these ragtag boats and they tow them just outside of Libyan territorial voters, into international voters, where all the, the NGO, NGO ships are waiting. All of those ships registered in, in EU ports. 
and they are bound by international law to rescue them because they are not on actual ships, they are on small boats and rafts, and then international law allows them to bring them to European ports. Interesting, interesting. So essentially, it's part of the smuggling business model to have rickety boats that will fall apart. They only need to hold together three miles out off the coast, and then do the smugglers or the aliens themselves like intentionally capsize or do something to the boats? Or in other words, there's no obligation to rescue people until there's a need to rescue them, right? In other words, the boat has to be, or the raft or whatever has to be sinking before you have to do anything, right? Actually, if you are in international voters on a raft or on a, on a small boat, it doesn't have to be capsizing. Really? I okay. mean, it's just a, if it's just a small inflatable uh, craft, right. then it doesn't qualify as a seafaring vessel. So even if you're just inside one of those, even if it's not sinking at the moment, you have to be rescued. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, that is, uh, it's one more reason that America's border challenge is probably more manageable. Our immigration challenge in general is more manageable than that exactly. Europe, I th Europe faces. I think that the Italian government would be very happy if they could just build a wall on their, on their southern border. Right, yeah. And specifically because, I mean, for those don't know geography, Italy's right there, but even more so, Italy has some islands. Lampedusa is an island, a small island that's the closest to the African coast, which is where a lot of this illegal traffic goes to. Do people go, and I mean, if you don't know, that's fine, but it occurs to me, Malta's right there too. Isn't Malta a, an appealing place for migrants to go to? Because it's in the EU now, right? Malta is in the EU, exactly. I don't think that uh, a lot of people are going to Malta. They prefer going to the Italian islands. Interesting, because I guess they have to take them to Italy then instead yeah. of stay yeah, in Malta, yeah, yeah. and you'd rather go to Italy. So the other issue is Europe does have land borders that migrants try to get across, and one that's been in the news a lot now is the border that Poland and Lithuania, both EU members, have with Belarus or Belarusia, um, which is run by a dictator, kind of a holdover Soviet-style dictator, Lukashenko, and he's been using migration as a kind of weapon. If you could tell us a little bit about what's going on there. Since the Belarusian election uh, in, uh, in 2020, there has been uh, increasing tensions between the EU and Belarusia. The EU doesn't recognize that election as fair and they don't recognize the results. And stronger and stronger economic sanctions are levied against Belarusia by the EU. And uh, the Belarusian leadership, well, they wanted to get back at the EU and they decided to use migrants as weapons in some kind of hybrid warfare. What Lukashenko, he's the Belarusian strongman, what he's doing, he's flying people with tourist visas from Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan into Belarusia. And then they put them on buses and they point them towards the, the Polish or the Lithuanian border. Both Poland and Lithuania are EU member states and are member of the Schengen area. In other words, once you get in, you are in. You're in. The Schengen area means the area where you don't need it. There's no real border controls. You can just cross. Yeah, there are no borders in the Schengen area. Right. You can cross wherever you want. Yes. Well, although inside, I inside. Mean, they're inside. Exactly. Although to some degree, I mean, I when I was in France a number of years ago, we were in Nice and we took the train over to Italy. And, you know, I, I, for, for a second, I panicked. I was like, oh, my God, we left our passports back there, but we didn't need passports. On the other hand, when we came back from Italy, 
the first stop in France, they did stop the train and the French cops went through. They didn't check people's papers, but they were looking for people to keep out of France. So the Schengen area is a real thing as far as open travel, but some of those governments do keep their eye on who's crossing. Yeah, and exactly, exactly. Since uh, since the migration uh, uh, crisis of 2015, uh, the Schengen area governments that are part of the Schengen area became more and more tough. Yes, exactly. Like uh, you have uh, police officers checking the traffic on highways between uh, Austria and Germany, between Austria and Hungary because of the migrants. Interesting. So the Belarusians are kind of directing these people to the Lithuanian and Polish borders because, of course, there's no risk that they're going to want to stay in. Belarus. There's no work there. It's not part of Europe. I assume there's relatively free travel into Russia from Belarus. I don't know that for a fact, but Belarus is almost, it's kind of like a protectorate, almost a puppet state of Russia now. But what's happening at the border and what are the implications there for fencing? But if you could first tell us what's going on there now. Well, this whole crisis started during the summer only with Lithuania. First, the Belarusian government only started sending um, the migrants to the Lithuanian border. Now they are also sending them to the Polish border. Do we know why it was just Lithuania at first? Did they figure it was weaker or smaller or something? Exactly. Lithuania is a, is a small state with only a population of less than 3 million people. It's much easier to overwhelm the authorities of a state that has less than 3 million people than, for example, Poland, who has only 40 million people. Mm-hmm. Now they are sending migrants towards Poland. Both the Polish and the Lithuanian government instituted a state of emergency and both of them said that they are going to build a fence on their border and they are not going to let the migrants pass. They also immediately, both countries, Lithuania already during the summer, Poland only two weeks ago, changed their asylum laws. Now, if you enter the country legally, you get deported immediately. You have to be abroad to file an asylum claim. Interesting. Okay. And we're taping this a few days before this is running, so events may overtake some of the things, but what are the kinds of things we're seeing so far now at the border? What we are seeing now at the, at the Polish border is thousands of migrants congregating. You can't really uh, build a wall in, in a month. So the Polish don't have a wall yet. They only have a concert in a wire. Uh, well, it's, a, it's kind of a barricade, a military right. barricade, but it's, it's not even that a That they fence. just put up, basically. That now, they just yeah. put up. Right. The army is there. Now there are uh, 12,000 Polish soldiers on the border. And what we are seeing is that these migrants are using uh, sticks and trees, uh, cut down trees and everything to get through those makeshift barriers. But the Polish border guard and the Polish army is not letting them through. Like you can see on these very scary videos that when the migrants break through at one point of the barricade, then you immediately have a human shield of soldiers and border guards who are not letting them cross. And mm-hmm. they are not processing them. They are not letting them cross. Right. I also have to mention, though, that there is a humanitarian disaster happening because the Polish, and it's in their right, it's about national sovereignty, they are not letting the migrants in. But the Belarusians are not letting the migrants back into Belarusia. So we have hundreds of people stuck at the border if they kind of if they no tr- man's land there it's a no man's land they are stuck yeah. in forests and now with winter approaching it's going to be a humanitarian disaster and i've noticed in the mainstream press that a lot of newspaper outlets are trying to say that it's poland who is doing something bad here no i'm sorry it's not the polish people it's not the polish government 
who ask for those migrants. I mean, if the Belarusians have those migrants inside their territory, then they are the ones who are supposed to care for them. Right. I mean, in a sense, the Belarusian dictators are playing a game of chicken with the Poles. In other words, it's sort of like who will, well, who will blink first? Lukashenko is not going to get public opinion pressure to let those people move back to Minsk or something like that. So he's basically betting on Poland surrendering before he surrenders. In other words, who blinks first? And it really is an awful situation, and it really shows how migration can be used as a weapon. I mean, Erdogan in Turkey kind of did a little bit that way and, and you know, turned it off when he was paid to turn it off. But this is really probably one of the most naked uses of migration as a weapon, probably since Castro let all those people out during the Mariel boat lift to Florida. There was another one recently in Europe. There are two small towns in Africa, in Morocco, which are Spanish enclaves, so they belong to Spain. They are right. two small port towns inside Morocco. And recently, uh, during the summer, well, the Moroccan state claimed those towns. They say that it should belong to Morocco. So what they did is they flooded one of these small towns with 6,000 sub-Saharan migrants, and they were climbing over the fence. And the Spanish authorities were having a hard time dealing with that, but in the end, they ended up deporting all of them. Oh, they did? Okay, They yeah. did, yeah. Because that was something you mentioned in your national interest piece, which, again, is going to be linked in the show notes, is that one of the first fences, border fences, in the whole European Union was the Spanish building border fences at those two towns, Ceuta and Melilla. I think it's how you pronounce it. They're holdovers from the Middle Ages when Spain ran parts of Morocco. But those fences actually make our border fences look tame in comparison. Exactly. The fences built in those uh, two towns, they look like something as if they were surrounding uh, a maximum security prison in the U.S., yes. And, I mean, from the news pictures I've seen of the people going over them, I mean, it's there is real determination to get over that fence. It's kind of alarming, actually. Fences can't completely stop people. The point right. is to slow them down. The point is to help the authorities and to make the borders manageable. Hungary actually got in the news in the migration context, probably most notably during that 2015 migration crisis where German Chancellor Angela Merkel basically invited everybody from Syria to move to Europe. So now it's when Hungary put up its own border fence, at least with Serbia. What was the background a little bit there? Tell us a little bit about Hungary's reaction to the 2015 crisis. Well, Hungary is on the so-called Western Balkan migratory route. And during 2015, uh, we had tens of thousands. And after that, during the summer, hundreds of thousands of people coming. Hungary is the size of Virginia with 10 million people. You can imagine that hundreds of thousands of people coming. That's, that's a lot for a small country like that. So the conservative Hungarian government decided to build a fence in order to stem the flow. Initially, from the left-wing parties and from prominent European leaders, there was a strong opposition because, well, in Europe, we have bad memories. We used to have the Iron Curtain. We used to have the Berlin Wall. Right. So uh, people used to have bad memories about fences and barbed wire. On the other hand, when the severity of the crisis set in for, to all the European elites, and especially in Hungary, then criticism faded. Today, if you poll the Hungarian population, then most of the people agree, like almost 90 percent, 
that there is a good thing, that there is a physical barrier at the southern border. I have to mention, though, that a physical barrier in itself is not enough. If you look at the numbers in Hungary from 2015, the number of migrants that were coming, mm-hmm. it started dropping, not when the fence was built, but when we also started having so-called legal barriers. The ones that I already mentioned, like you can't ask for asylum if you're inside Hungary. You have to do it outside of Hungary. The laws were also changed in Hungary in 2016. Now the Hungarian police can deport anyone who crossed the border illegally from the whole country up until we have um, a so-called emergency situation because of mass migration. Oh, so in other words... They don't have to arrest them just at the border, even no, if they're no. they if they arrest Budapest, them anywhere in Hungary, yes, they can immediately deport them. Okay, interesting. So, a couple of things: when the flow into Hungary during the 2015 crisis dissipated, were people going elsewhere? In other words, were they going around Hungary? They were still going to Germany. They're still trying to get to Germany and Sweden, right? In other words, did they go to through Croatia, or what did they do? Yes, after the Hungarian physical and legal barrier was set up, the, the migration route shifted westwards. After that, the people tried to cross to first Bosnia and then to Croatia. But now the Croatians also have their uh, physical barrier at their border. Right, okay, interesting. But one thing that I also always kind of wondered about during this 2015 crisis and Hungary's response to it is why did Hungary react differently from, say, some of the Central American countries here who are seeing all these third country people come through, their goal is basically just to get them through and get them out. Panama and Costa Rica, for instance, have this arrangement that Todd Benzman for the center has written about, where and it's changed since, but they would literally pick up the migrants, they be from the Caribbean or from Africa or the Middle East, pick them up at the border, put them on buses and drive them to the other border, and then hand them over to the Costa Ricans, and they would put them on a bus and take them to their northern border and then be rid of them. I assume these Afghans and Syrians and others from the 2015 crisis weren't aiming to stay in Hungary, right? In other words, why, why didn't Orban's government just say, as long as you're out of here within 48 hours, we don't care, just make sure you're out of here? Hungary takes its uh, international treaty obligations very seriously, especially those ones regarding the EU. It's in the treaties, and specifically in the Schengen Treaty, that external borders of the Schengen area has to be protected, and it is the obligation of that country who is on that external border. So when Which, hu- and Hungary is one of those countries. Hungary is one of those countries, yes. So when Hungary chose to defend its southern border, at the same time it was also defending Europe and the Schengen area. And without getting any thanks for it, in a sense. In other words... Yeah, without getting any thanks for it. Right, right. Where do you think Europe's going to go on this? I mean, are you going to see more legal and physical barriers to migration coming up in Europe? Yes, exactly. It seems to me that that's the future in Europe. Right now, all of the major governments in Europe, even even the left-wing ones or the centrist ones, are getting tougher and tougher on immigration. I mean, two countries that we can highlight is Germany and Sweden. Their stance also hardened a lot since the crisis in Sweden in particular, that's notable because they've always been quite lax in that regard. They are still lax, but they are uh, much less lax than they were in 2015. Interesting. So it's kind of like there was a saying in the 1960s, a conservative is a liberal who gets mugged, uh, (laughs) you know, by a criminal. And so in a sense, a 
hardline country on immigration is a softline one that has a migration crisis. So what do you think the, uh, I mean, this is speculation, what do you think the prospects are for changes here in the U.S.? Because we seem to be going, well, we are going in the opposite direction, at least for now. Well, uh, for me, it's very strange because uh, if I look at all the policy solutions that you have here in the, in the U.S., like uh, shelved, obviously, but you, but you have them. I mean, you have all the solutions. You just have to implement them. And for that, you need political will. And well, if after the midterms or after uh, the next presidential election, there will be enough political will to actually stop illegal migration from Central America, then I think you will be able to do that very easily. Because the tools exist, we just need to decide to use them. I personally think that the US is in a much better situation than Europe. You have all the tools that you need. Europe doesn't have all the tools. Interesting. They're still developing the tools, you mean, or their challenge is just greater? Or is the it challenge is much greater, especially the one that we talked about, like the Mediterranean Sea and, uh, and the migrants coming from Africa, yes. Right. And Africa, I mean, it's got way more people. It's, it's the place where the population is growing in the world much more rapidly. Exactly. We are talking about hundreds of millions of people. I mean, even if all of the population of Central America would pack tomorrow and leave for the U.S., that wouldn't be, right. uh, okay, not counting Mexico, but the rest of the countries, that would be less than 100 million people. Yeah, 40, 45 million, 50 million people. So, um, so yeah, I mean, in a sense, our challenge is serious, but it's not nearly as serious as what Europe is facing. And you are in a good spot because you have the chance to negotiate with actual stable countries and governments. It's not like the U.S. is bordering a number of failed states. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, Haiti maybe is the closest thing we have to that, but Mexico certainly is not a failed state. It has real challenges. People sometimes exaggerate the challenges from the drug cartels and talk about Mexico as a failed state, but it's still a functional state with real capacity to implement its will. So anyway, thank you, Christoph, for visiting with us. And the article is in the national interest like I said, we'll have a link to it. It's definitely worth reading. I hope you'll be doing some more work on this whole idea of things comparable to remain in Mexico or what the Danish and the British are working on. And if you do, we'll, uh, we'll have you back then. Thanks. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having me. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, thanking you for tuning in and uh, reminding you that next week is Thanksgiving. And we're going to be taking a break. We're not going to have a podcast episode. And then the following Thursday, we'll have a new episode. Until then, have a good Thanksgiving. And I hope you join us in December. Thanks.